Hey, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Got the extra hour of sleep, so everybody's wide awake, energetic, ready for the day, right? Well, welcome today. We are in a series called The Story, and we're taking a break today. Uh, but we've got a treat. So if you're going through us, tracking with us through the story, uh, next week we'll pick that up in the next part. But today we have a very special guest, uh, one of my great friends in ministry. He's been a mentor to me since I was 25 years old. That was quite a while ago. He had a big influence on my ministry and what I do today. He's been in town this weekend doing our marriage seminar that we had Friday night and Saturday. And if you were part of that, that's great. Appreciate you doing that. He is the founder of Marriage Helper. If your marriage is in trouble or you would like to give your marriage a tune-up or if your marriage is in crisis, like 911 crisis, you need to go to marriagehelper.com and check out what my friend Joe Beam has started to help marriages not only flourish and heal, but be all that God designed them to be. So please take some time today and do that. Well, I'd like to introduce to you my, my great friend uh, for many years. Uh, he's going to share a message of hope and forgiveness, and you are going to be encouraged by it. Joe Beam, come on out. It is a a privilege, actually, to be invited to speak for the LifePoint Church. Donnie pointed out, I've known him and Cindy since he was 25, so it's nearly three years now. We've known each other. Just, just amazing. It's a great church. I really enjoy being in this church. It's a, I hope that you know how wonderful it is to be in a church like this. I speak all over America for all kinds of churches, and there are not many churches I would go back to. I'd come to this church every Sunday to listen to Donnie. I really would. So I hope you're privileged. Today we're going to talk about guilt for a little bit. Now, let me see if I can explain a little bit about that. Guilt in the spiritual realm accomplishes what pain does in the physical realm. Now, if we couldn't feel pain, we'd be in trouble. For example, if you were to sit on a hot stove and you couldn't feel pain, then you would cook, and you wouldn't even realize it, and everybody else would have rump roast. So what <laughs> pain says, pain says in the physical realm, something's wrong, fix it. That's what pain says. Now, guilt does the same thing in the spiritual world, or even the emotional world. It says something's wrong, fix it. But just like pain, if it continues unabated, winds up being debilitating, then guilt will do the same thing in the spiritual realm. If you just keep feeling guilty and keep feeling guilty and keep feeling guilty, it will finally just debilitate you. It will totally and completely shut you down. So what do we do then? When we have physical pain, we seek medical help. Do something to not only help stop the pain, but help me do something to make the pain go away so it doesn't come back. Help me find healing. Well, the same thing should occur in the spiritual realm, that if guilt is affecting me, then I need to find the healing. Go back to the cause and find the healing of God for that so that not only can I just you know, lessen the guilt, but actually heal the guilt so it doesn't come back anymore. There's a story in the New Testament that helps me understand that. It's in the 8th chapter of the Gospel of John. Here's what it says, beginning at verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. And said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? 
they were using this as a this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Let me stop and explain what that what that means. In the Old Testament law of Moses, the law we're referring to, if a person were actually guilty of adultery, if they'd been convicted of that, they took them outside the city. They would have a big pit outside the city walls, and they would take the person who had been convicted of the crime, in this case adultery, and they would put that person in that pit. All around the edge of that, there were all these rocks. And people would pick up the rocks and begin throwing them at that person. It made no difference how penitent the person was, how sorry the person was, like, I'm so sorry, forgive me, please don't do this. No matter how much they protested, they were going to be killed. And the death would not come instantaneously. The first thing they do is try to cover their heads and their vital organs, maybe crawl into a fetal position, and the rocks would just keep coming, first bruising the skin, finally splitting the skin and breaking the bones. A very gruesome way to die until finally, finally they would lose the strength in their arms, which would fall away from their heads, and then mercifully, maybe one of the rocks would knock them unconscious and they would finally die. Because it was such a horrendous death, and because it, that, that method of execution was so terrible, what they would do is this. If, if you were the witness that proved that this person was guilty, you had to throw the first rock. They did that so that nobody would just capriciously accuse somebody of something. It's like, if you really believe they're guilty, then you believe they're worthy of death. If you believe they're worthy of death, then you're the one who's going to pick up and throw the first rocks. And so that was what they did. Now, in this particular occasion, the reason they thought they could tempt Jesus, or actually trap Jesus, is because the Jewish people had been conquered by the Romans. They had been defeated in war, and now that the Romans were there, they governed all of the Jewish land. Now, the Jewish law said if this woman's caught in adultery, we should take her outside the walls of the city and stone her to death. The Romans said, we now run things around here, and you no longer have the right to do any executions. If executions are done, we will do them. You may remember that it was the Romans then who crucified Jesus. We will do it. So they think they have him trapped because whatever he says, they're going to turn somebody against him. If he said, okay, the law of Moses said to execute her, so execute her, then they'll go straight to the Romans and say, this guy's trying to start an insurrection. He's telling us to disobey you. On the other hand, if he said, no, according to Roman law, we can't do this. We just have to do what the Romans say. Then they would go to the Jewish people and say, see, he doesn't care about our law. They think that whatever he says, they have him trapped. It's kind of difficult when you think you can trap God. Because you're not smarter than he is. Well, he's got all kinds of advantages, like knowing what you've got to do before you do it, knowing what you think. It gives them an edge. So what happens next is this. It says, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. This is the only time in the Bible that Jesus has ever shown to be writing anything. We don't know what he was writing. Various people speculate. I've heard people say, well, I think he was writing something like, if a man lusts after a woman, he's guilty of adultery already in his heart. Maybe. Other people think, well, I think he was writing, uh, let him without sin cast the first stone. That's a possibility. One old preacher back in the day said, I don't think he was writing anything. I think he was giving, just giving those rascals time to sweat. So here he is, writing on the ground, and it says, when they kept on questioning him. In other words, he's not saying anything. This has got to aggravate them. They think they have him trapped, and he's not doing anything. He's on his knee writing on the ground. It makes them mad. So they keep asking more and more and more questions. And finally, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. By the way, this is a brilliant answer. 
He didn't tell them to disobey Roman law. He didn't tell them to do Jewish law. He basically just said, if you think she should die, you kill her. And that put it back in their camp, and, and now they've been had. They know that they have no answer for this. And at this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. When I read my Bible, Old Testament or New, sometimes I'll read a story like this and I'm thinking, I wish they had more details. There's all kinds of things I'd like to know about this passage. It's my opinion, I may be wrong, but it's my opinion that sometimes God has left out the details, made it just a little vague, so that the details of our lives fit in there instead. It's like, oh, wow, I can see how that applies to me. If he'd given me too many details about her, then maybe I wouldn't relate. So it's just enough that I can kind of insert my own stuff into there. I think that's part of what's going on. Now, we look at that, and, and there's some questions we would have about that text. There's no way to figure out. Like, for example, the woman was caught in the act of adultery. How did they catch her? And if they actually caught her, were they trying to catch her? I mean, are these some kind of sickos? Also, also the question of, where's the guy? <laughs> Why didn't they bring him? Did he just run away too fast? Was he a friend of theirs? Hey, Charlie, beat it. We'll take care of her. Or, or maybe he was just president. <laughs> but for whatever reason, whatever reason they don't bring the guy, they just bring the woman. Now, now think for a minute how humiliating that must have been. I mean, first of all, she knows that she has done a terrible thing. According to the law of Moses, this is capital punishment crime. I mean, this is something they can execute her for. You look at that, and in my business, I work with marriages, that's what I do. I'm always trying to figure out why did somebody do what they did? Not to justify what they did, but to understand it. In my opinion, if we can help somebody figure out why they did what they did, or why they're doing what they're doing, we can help them figure out how to stop. So I don't look at it to justify, I look at it to rectify. It's like, how can we help these people? And so I look at this story and go, Wow, I've dealt with a lot of people who have committed adultery, both men and women. They all have their unique individual stories, all of them. There's some commonalities, of course. I mean, was this woman, like, just so oversexed that she wanted to have sex with other men? Maybe. But it doesn't seem to fit the context of what happens next. Maybe, maybe even though she was married to one man, she allowed herself to become too close a friend to another man. And... and Maybe they were just both good people. As a matter of fact, based on what Jesus is about to do, I don't think he's looking at somebody with this hard, whole, cold, rock heart inside of them. This certainly appears to be a woman who is a good person who has done a bad thing. By the way, would you agree with me there's a difference in a good person who does a bad thing and a bad person who does a bad thing? I mean, in my business working with marriages, most of the time marriage is in crisis. Sometimes people will call us and say, my husband has done this or my wife has done that. Should I try to save the marriage? And believe it or not, the first question we always ask is, is this a good person who did a bad thing or a bad person who did a bad thing? If it's a bad person, we don't know if we can help because we don't know what they'll do next. But if this is a good person who would do a bad thing, maybe he or she is worth rescuing.
I think this woman was a good woman who did a bad thing. I mean, adultery is a bad thing. And I think if I knew her story, she'd be able to tell us something like, I never meant for it to happen. We, we were just friends. We, we used to talk. It, it was like he, like he understood not only the things I tried to explain to him, he understood me. He understood how I felt. He understood the things, he understood the things I wanted to do and the things I did instead. He understood my, my fears. It just happened over time that we became so close that the barriers kind of dropped. And one day we found ourselves going a little further and, and it finally wound up being adultery. These men apparently don't care. They're not interested in how she got to where she is. They're not interested in whether she's good, bad, or indifferent. All they want to do is trap Jesus, and they found this woman, and now they're going to use her. And the way they did it was to humiliate her. They brought her. Remember it said Jesus was sitting there teaching tons of people? I mean, there were all kinds of people around there. They bring her in front of everybody and say, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Can you imagine how that felt? Well, like I said, sometimes I think these stories are a little bit vague, a little bit ambiguous, just so we can insert our own stories and they seem to fit there. <sighs> Unfortunately, my personal story does. When, when I met Donnie and Cinda back in 1992, my life had, was in its second phase, maybe even the third. I had come straight out of college and gone right into ministry. As a matter of fact, my wife and I had married before we even finished college. And, and so I was a minister for 15 years. And in our particular denomination back in those days, the one we were part of back then, um, I had been invited to speak a lot of places around America. And, and a lot of people knew my name because I had been invited so many different places. So a lot of people knew me. I got into trouble. It wasn't anybody else's fault. It was my fault. But I got into trouble. By the way, later, I tried to figure out if I'd had any help. Don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that I don't take full responsibility and culpability. I do. Everything I did was my decision. But I later wondered, later in my life, did, did some spiritual beings somehow help me by putting certain things here and certain things there? And I wound up writing a book called Seeing the Unseen, which is about how the bad guys work, meaning the spiritual forces of evil and how God works. As if you want, that book's out there. If you don't want, that's fine. But I think I had a lot of help. Oh, it doesn't absolve me. I got into things I should have never gotten into, doing things I never should have done. I continued to get into it deeper and deeper and deeper. I was still a minister. Nobody knew. I was pretty good at hiding it. And then I remember vividly the day I was confronted. I'd been caught. The guy looked me right in the eye and he said, I have the evidence. I know what you're doing. I've got proof of it. You're done. Then he said, I've already been to our church leaders. They have the evidence. I've told them. But they wanted me to come tell you that I've turned you in. I don't know how to describe that emotion. Fear is nowhere close. Terror, maybe. It's like everything fell inside of me. My world is over. Everything I've done, everything I've been part of all my life is now ended. And I don't know what else is going to happen. But you must understand that at that point, I was so involved in my sin, I was so engrossed in my sin, that even though I was caught, I wasn't about to change. 
I mean, certainly the church should let me go. They did. You understand? They called me in. Technically, they did allow me to resign just for my own pride's sake, but they fired me, and, and they should have fired me. And then word spreads everywhere in our denomination because people knew who I was. And so all across the country, people begin to hear. As a matter of fact, they actually heard worse things than I did. What I did was really bad. But people just exacerbated that. You understand? The story got wilder and wilder and wilder. I actually said to one lady once, I said, I've heard every rumor in the world about me except that, that I'm a homosexual or that I'm a murderer. She said, I can't wait to tell people you killed your male lover. <laughs> I left my wife. As a matter of fact, I didn't just leave my wife. I divorced my wife. I convinced myself that I could be a good father to my children every other weekend. I convinced myself that I would be much happier doing my sin than I would being what I used to be. I had a, had a thing inside of me that had caused me a lot of misery. I'll explain it just the briefest way. That it, the psychologist would explain it to you more. It's a thing called cognitive dissonance. Here's what that means. If, if this is my belief and value system, if this is what I believe I should do, this is right. And if what I'm doing is in contradiction to that, I mean, this is what I believe, but this is what I'm doing. Cognitive dissonance. Dissonance means disharmony. It means you get messed up inside. You don't have any peace. And it just eats you alive. Well, people can't live without peace. We crave peace. We want peace. Well, there's only two ways, only two ways to resolve cognitive dissonance. Either you quit the thing you're doing that's in contradiction to your belief and value system, or, or you change your belief and value system to allow you to do this, which is what I did. I changed my belief and value system to allow me to continue to pursue the thing I was involved in. The interesting thing about that is that your belief and value system is part of your identity. It's part of who you are. And if you change your belief and value system, you become somebody else. And I did. Which means that I couldn't even continue in my sin because I became somebody so different that nobody wanted anything to do with me at all. Like, I don't know who you are. I didn't either. But now I wound up all alone. Most of my friends had abandoned me. Some because they just didn't want anything to do with the sinner. Some, because they didn't know what to do. And since they didn't know how to help or what to do, they just went away, they left me alone. I, I tried going into a business that I didn't know anything about and wound up heavily in debt. As a matter of fact, I eventually wound up at that point in my life bankrupt. So with all that pain and now being all alone and everybody had abandoned me, the only, the only consistent thing in my life at this point is that every other weekend I'm seeing my daughters. That's the only consistency in my life. And I have so much pain, so much hurt, and so much anger. I thought I was angry at everybody else who was treating me so badly. From this point in my life, I understand that I was really angry at me. But I didn't know that then. How would I handle the pain? What would I do? Well, my father died a few years ago, a good Christian man, I have no doubt he is in heaven, but when I was a boy, my father drank a lot. So I knew what to do to cover your pain because I'd seen my father cover his pain when I was a young man, and so I started drinking. To begin with, it didn't take much to get me drunk because it was kind of a new thing for me. I'd been in ministry for the last 15 years, but I, I built a tolerability very quickly where it took more and more and more to get me drunk. 
So I started stealing. If, if somebody started, if, if anyone, and it didn't happen a lot, but it happened some, if anyone invited me to their house for dinner, I soon discovered that people keep their medicine either in a, in a cabinet in the bathroom or a cabinet in the kitchen. That's where most people keep their medicines, believe it or not. And I was very good at sifting through their medicines when they were not aware. And any kind of narcotics I would steal. Uh, Valium, I would take that. Uh, Painkillers, all those kinds of things, the heavy duty. Anything that could possibly give me a buzz. You say, oh, you wanted to be high. No. I wanted not to hurt. If you ever go to an AA meeting, by the way, when you first get there, you'll see the 4,000 cigarette butts outside. And that's from the guy that got there early. <laughs> because we're all still addicts, you understand? I'd become a full-fledged addict. But if you talk to somebody who's been to an AA meeting several times, enough to understand himself or herself, if you say, why do you drink? They're going to say something like this. I like the way it makes me feel. You say, oh, you like to be high. Well, typically we do, but that's not really what we're talking about. When I'm doing this, I don't hurt. They surveyed a bunch of businessmen that regularly look at pornography, and they asked them what was the, most, what was the emotion they felt most often when looking at porn. If you're an addict, you really understand their answer. You might think titillation or excitement. The people who regularly look at it said, when I'm looking at it, I feel peace. Why? I'm living in a different world. I don't have to deal with my real pain. So I'd steal. Of course, people never invited me back to their homes for some reason. Then I started going into strip clubs. I didn't have any money, but I'd go early enough in the afternoon you didn't have to pay a cover charge. I'd sit over in the corner by myself, and I'd go over and there'd be a bunch of guys at a table. I'd tell them a joke. They'd buy me a drink. I'd go back to my corner. When I finished that, I'd go find another group of guys, tell them a joke. They'd buy me a drink. I'd go back to my corner. The girls would come over and, and try to work me for money because that's what they do for a living. When they finally figured out I had no money, if they had a little break, they weren't busy, they'd come sit with me. They'd ask me, what's your name? I was so afraid one of them may have heard of me back when I was a minister that I would never tell them my name. So they just call me the sad guy. Hey, the sad guy's back. Because they knew I had no money and kind of during their break, sort of, they'd come and sit with me and they'd talk about the problems they have with their fathers or with their boyfriends or they'd tell me about their children. And that's when I began to realize a lot of those women are not people with cold, hard, dark hearts. A lot of them are people in a whole lot of pain. And one night in a strip club in Atlanta, I'd stolen some bagging from somebody. And that night in that strip club, I only, I only drank six beers that night, just six, but I took 20 Valium. Not, one, not all at one time, it was just another one and then another one. And the next thing I knew, I was driving across the sidewalk at a McDonald's in Oxford, Alabama, and people were running from me. The next time I woke up, I was in Birmingham, Alabama. Obviously, I had driven from Atlanta to Birmingham. I have no memory other than that McDonald's. I have no memory of that trip at all. It was just about to break daylight, and I was in front of an office. It was the office of my attorney. I had a key to his office because I, I had led that man to Jesus before. So I opened his office. I got as far as his receptionist desk before I passed out again. He was the first guy in that morning, and I'm passed out. If he had known what was in my system, he would have taken me to the hospital. He thought I was just drunk. 
He's a big man. So he picked me up, put me in a car, took me home. I slept 48 hours. Then it was Sunday. He said, let's go to church. I said, I don't go to church anymore. Did I tell you he's a big man? We went to church. When finally I was sober enough, the first thing I did was walk around my car looking for blood, terrified that I'd killed somebody. You say, wow, boy, that was bottom. Oh, no. The pain was still there. The anger was still there. The hurt was still there. The guilt was eating me alive, although I didn't understand it was guilt at the time. It got worse. The last time I overdosed, by the way, and I don't even remember what I took that time, but it was a lot of stuff. I went up in an intensive care at a hospital in Birmingham, Alabama. They were pumping my stomach. They said, who's your doctor? The only doctor I could think of was Dr. Frank Sutton, who was a pulmonary specialist. That's, that's lungs. Had nothing to do with my problem, but the only guy I could think of, and so they called Frank. I actually had breakfast with Frank last week. Now, the event I'm telling you about happened in 1986. But I had breakfast with Frank last week. I said, do you happen to remember the night you saved my life? He said, yeah, I was pretty angry with you. And he was. He came in when they got him there, and, and he said, Joe, according to this report, we're checking your blood, you're at L50. L50, I don't know what that means. He said, you got a 50% chance of being alive in the morning. They put me in the intensive care room. They literally assembled the code blue team. They were circling outside of the room, waiting for my heart to die. I had a nurse. She was busy trying to keep me alive. And whenever she had a couple of minutes, she would hold my hand. According to the clock on the wall, it was 5.30 in the morning. When, when finally she started talking to me, she said, she said, did you mean to kill yourself? I thought, maybe I can talk to her. I said, I, I don't think so. I said, you know, I, I, I used to be a minister. It's as far as I got. She literally threw my hand back on the bed. She stepped back, glared at me with this intense hatred, and turned and walked out of the room and refused to come back. They literally had to scramble to find another nurse to come take care of me. I never saw her again. Oh, I didn't get mad at her. Obviously, somewhere, somewhere along the line, something maybe involving a minister had hurt her very badly, so I wasn't mad at her. But I do remember lying there thinking, I'm going to die, and nobody will even hold my hand. Three days later, they let me out. I wish I could say my life immediately turned around, but it didn't. It took me a little while. The next year, 1987, I called my former wife. I said, I said, would you consider the possibility of taking me back? She said, I need to think about this. I get it. She talked to a lot of Christian people and said, should I take Joe back? And without exception, every single one of them said, no. You could never trust him again. So they counseled. And I prayed, and now I prayed them. So we married each other again. People sometimes ask her, wasn't that a risk? She said, yes. Why did you do it? She said, well, I figure every relationship was a risk. What she tells other people is, but I knew that inside of Joe there was a good heart down there somewhere under all that stuff, and he was worth rescuing. 
She didn't want to get married on the same day as before. The first time was June 7th, the second time June 14th. You understand why she didn't want the same anniversary? And she expects a present both times. <laughs> on, on June 7th, on June 7th, she and I celebrate. On June 14th, my whole family celebrates because that's when we all married each other again. You say, what's the point? Couple. You remember in that text I just read to you, it said that everybody left. The older guys left first because they realized <laughs> we can't trap him. The younger guys took longer because they're like, oh, we can figure this out. Finally, everybody disappears and she's standing there. People have asked me sometimes, okay, why didn't she leave? I know the answer to that question. Not because of what's in the text, but because of what I've lived through. I know the answer to that question. She had no place else to go. No friends. Nobody. Totally humiliated, marked with that big red A. Not necessarily stamped on her forehead, but definitely stamped on her life. Right? So she stayed the only place where there was somebody who cared about her. And that was that man who was riding on the ground. Woman? Where are your accusers? Is there nobody left to accuse you? No one, Lord. Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Let me explain two Bible words to you that are taking place here. Even though they're not in the text, they're definitely taking place. The first one's called mercy. Human beings can understand mercy because sometimes we give it. Here's what mercy means. Mercy means you deserve to be punished but I'm not going to punish you. You've probably done that somewhere in your life to somebody. They deserve to be punished, but you said, hey, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to punish you. That's mercy. So human beings can grasp that because sometimes we do it. The second word's a little harder for us to understand because not many humans actually do it. The second word is grace. So mercy is, I'm not going to make you pay. Grace is, you really did a rotten thing. Here, here's a present. Do what? Yeah, you really hurt me. Here, here's a new car. People don't act like that. But God not only gives us mercy. I, I'm not going to make you pay for what you did. I could, but I'm not going to. And here's grace. I'm going to give you blessings and gifts instead. He did that for me. I mean, all kinds of things God has done for me. Alice and I have been married again to each other a couple of years when this guy from over in Birmingham, Alabama, calls me, and we were living in Augusta, Georgia, and he said, I want you to come speak to my church. And I said, don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I've done? I mean, I don't think people even want me to come to church. You want me to speak at your church? No. He did something interesting. He said, has anybody ever told you that you have the gift of speaking? I said, yeah. He said, if you had the gift of speaking, who gave it to you? Uh, God. So if God gave you a gift, what right do you have to refuse to use it for him? I never thought about it like that. So I went and spoke at his church, which led to speaking to another church, which led to another, which finally led me to LifePoint Church. Twenty-something years later, just one gift after another, after another, after another. You see, that's how God works. You say, does he just do it for everybody? 
He does it for anybody who will trust him. Anybody who will place faith in him. But what if they've done something really bad? Usually when people walk up and say, I think I've done something that can't be forgiven, I say, let's compare stories. <laughs> you did that and that and that, you're an amateur. <laughs> I did this, this, and this. Stuff I'm not going to tell you. God, if you place your faith in him, will give you mercy. I'm not going to make you pay for that. Now, some people will, no matter what. You understand there's still some Pharisees. Believe it or not, there's still people, even all these years later, I run into sometime who say, you are scum. You never deserve to have any good thing in your life. Hey, I agree. I don't deserve any good thing. But I'm really happy you're not God. Because he's given mercy, he's given grace, he pours out his blessings. You say, then, then you just automatically, that fast got over your guilt. No, it took me a little while. I actually wound up later writing another book about getting past guilt. Well, all my books I write for me. You have to understand that. It was like, how do I get past feeling guilty? It kind of ties back to a story that happened. I finally was in, I started getting sick every fall. Got really sick every fall. Now, the worst thing I ever did in all of that time, I did in the fall of the year. I don't tell people what it was. I even asked permission from my wife, would you give me the grace not to tell you that one? She did. But every fall, every fall I got sick and I got sicker and, and it was where I couldn't, I could barely move. It was just terrible. And so I was doing something for Sears out in Phoenix like I was doing corporate stuff, and I called my wife. Alice and I have been remarried, you know, four, uh, three or four years at that time. I called her back, and I said, we got we to gotta find me a new doctor. I want you to find me one who's really young but with lots of experience and who knows everything. <laughs> I got off the plane when I got back to where we lived, and she said, I found you a new doc. I said, great. She said, his name is Daniel Boone. <laughs> he's actually a descendant of the real Daniel Boone, and he's a fine Christian man, wonderful Christian guy. He ran test after test after test after test. And I finally go back. This is going on for weeks, and I'm sitting there. And he says, Joe, I've done every test I can. I thought it was lupus. I thought it was this. I thought it was that. He said, I finally figured it out. He said, it's guilt. Guilt is literally eating you from the inside. It is killing you. It is destroying you. There's nothing medical science can do that will be $50. I said, what do I do, Daniel? He said, man, you've got to heal inside. You've got to believe in the grace of God, not just think about it theologically, but believe it really exists. Shortly after I was speaking for a college group in Kentucky, there was a guy there, one of the elders of their church. His name was Jim Leake. Jim said, Joe, you look pretty sick. I am. What's the matter? You wouldn't believe me if I told you. He said, let's go for a walk. I can't walk for him. We went a little path, went down this path. They were doing this in the state park. There was an old cabin there, and we sat down on two rocking chairs. And I said, I've never told anybody, but I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you, it's guilt killing me. That's what my doc says. I think he's right. But let me tell you what it is I feel guilty about. And, and I told him. He did this amazing thing. He said, have you ever mourned your sin? Yeah, Jim, I'm really sorry I did it. He said, no, no, no. Have you ever cried over your sin? I don't cry. Then he, then he did this thing. He reached over and put his hand on mine, and he looked me right in the eye, and he said, I forgive.
forgive you. Now, if you think about it logically, he didn't even know me when I did it. What makes any difference if he forgives me or not? But he was speaking for God. And when he said those words, I collapsed into his arms and sobbed like a child. And I got well. Not that day, but I got well. The guilt went away. I was healed. Would you like to have that? Whatever it is that you're feeling guilty about, I mean that thing you're thinking about right now, would you like to be healed from that? You don't have to get in the time machine and go back to the days of Jesus. There are people who walk with God in them now who will listen to the thing you feel guilty about and they're not going to go, ah, oh, you shouldn't feel guilty about that because that's not what you need to hear. What you need to hear is, yeah, that's bad. But God gives mercy. God gives grace. And if you trust in him, if you place your faith in Jesus, if you yield to Jesus as your Lord, let me look you in the eye and tell you what God's saying to you. I forgive you. And then you can start to heal if you believe God tells the truth. You understand? But I'm bad, he knows. I don't deserve it. Good, you're beginning to understand this. It's God's mercy and God's grace to those that yield to him. And in a couple of minutes, Rob will be up here and, and, and Donnie will be up here. There are other good Christian people in this group as well. You don't have to walk out of this church building today feeling guilty. You can start the healing process. If you've not yet given yourself to Jesus, ask them how you do that. If you have given yourself to Jesus but still feel guilt, tell them why. Let them pray for you. Because God can use you. I know. Because he uses me. Father, thank you for your love, your mercy, your kindness, all the things you've given us. God, thank you for being our Father. Jesus, thank you for what you did so we can be completely, absolutely, and totally forgiven. Spirit, thank you for living in the body of Christ, the church, but in us as your people, knowing us in the inner man and giving us the peace we need through faith in you. God, we're sorry for the bad things we did. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Through the name of Jesus, amen.